Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's a lot of concern about whether women will be allowed to work, that girls can still go to school. What assurances can you give to women and girls that their rights will be protected? Welcome to the Andy Rowe Show. When Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, Kiwi reporter Charlotte Ballas made headlines around the world. At the Taliban's first press conference in Kabul, it was Ballas, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Westerner, who brazenly questioned the organisation's leaders on women's rights. Fast forward to a year later, and it was the Taliban that would offer her assistance when the New Zealand government wouldn't let her into her own country during COVID. But before we start the episode, AG1 is supporting us again this week and are offering you a chance to get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. AG1 is the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day before I start the day. I was tired of taking so many supplements and wanted a single solution that supports my entire body and covers my nutritional basis every day. I want a better gut health and hate taking pills and vitamins. So if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free year one supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to drinkag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. That's drinkag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. I hope you enjoy the episode. Charlotte, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Where are you? I'm in Antwerp. This is where my partner Jim's family is from. And um, it's our base for now because it's good for work. We can jump off yeah. um, from here pretty easily. And you've got a little one, Rita, as well. Yes. How she's now you? 18 months. 18 months. Crazy. It's funny that because I remember the reason why I bring that up is because I remember um, – when you were trying to get back into New Zealand, because I was stuck in MIQ at the same time and we were playing the lottery Mm -hmm. system uh, and we were just cheering you on because you were calling out, calling out the New Zealand government to let you back in. And then, I mean, trying, trying to desperately get home. I mean, it was um, a very stressful time for a whole lot of reasons. Um, And I really did not foresee it playing out like it did. At one point, the Taliban were offering to take you in because New Zealand weren't taking you in. Isn't that right? Yeah, but it it played. It was a little bit different. Um, New Zealand had a, a quarantine system where you had to go into a hotel um, for two weeks and ensure that you didn't have COVID and bring it into New Zealand, which was COVID-free for a very long time. Um, but to get that hotel room, you had to apply with the government um, through kind of an online portal. Uh, but there was a very high demand for it. And, and you would kind of play it, if you will, and it would churn back and say you are this in the queue and uh, you would watch the screen kind of like a ticket to a concert and you would hope that you got said ticket um, so that you could come back and do the quarantine. And then you weren't getting in. I managed to get yeah, in. Yeah, I was so always... I basically took your spot. 
Um, yeah, I, I was too I was too low on the ticket queue um, yeah. for a few months there, and the clock was ticking because I was pregnant. Um, and I couldn't be in Qatar because, uh, yeah, a, a lot of, of a lot of what it came down to was um, um, getting healthcare. That was kind of the underlying concern that I had in Qatar. Um, I went to a doctor who, a gynecologist, a German woman, and said, um, I think I'm pregnant. Uh, what do we do? And she said, well, I would advise you to leave the country. I'll, I'll write this off um, as saying that you came out in for a checkup. And she did a quick scan and said, yep, you're kind of six weeks or something. A lot of people said, oh, you won't you go here, won't you go there? But if you're a tourist somewhere, you kind of get a month in country. And if you're pregnant, trying to jump around country by country um, without healthcare, it becomes concerning. And... Um, and riddled with issues. So, yeah, I was always hopeful to get back into New Zealand. Um, and we had visas to work in Afghanistan. Um, Jim had lived there for seven years. It was his home, car, house, business, everything there. And so he felt very at home there. I'd been working there for a long time. Um, and we had contacts. The Taliban had taken over by that point. And I talked to some of the contacts and said, look, we have work visas so we can enter the country and we can stay for a decent period of time. I had a gynecologist there who said that she'd look after me. Um, it was going to become more problematic around the birth, but if anything went wrong with the birth, it would be difficult in Kabul to get the same standard of care that you'd get um, mm. in New Zealand, for example. So it was kind of a place that we went to to buy time and the Taliban said, look, yes, we appreciate you're not married. In our society, that would be illegal, uh, but you're a foreigner. So for you, the rules don't apply. Um, and we're willing to kind of overlook it and we'd appreciate it if you didn't kind of, um, uh, yeah, if you just kind of kept your head down. Yeah. So that was, the, um, that was kind of the, what we'd said at the beginning. Obviously, it kind of blew up a little bit. Um, and I want to take a minute just to note uh, my point of you're a foreigner, so the rules don't apply because that became a topic of, of um, debate um, when all of this was kicking off. And, yeah, it, it, it's very true, even as a journalist, uh, as a foreigner in Afghanistan, but also in other places, um, you have potentially more freedoms um, and less scrutiny than potentially the local population. So, yeah, for... For Afghan women, they wouldn't have been able to um, do what I was able to do by being a New Zealander. Let's go back to the Taliban. How did you get to? Are you still friends with them for a start? Like, could you get in touch with them now? I don't think friends is is ever the right term. I mean, they were contacts. Uh, they were. It's a massive kind of movement, right? So I had a few good contacts. Um, that I would meet with because they were in, in Doha. I was living in Doha and I was covering Afghanistan uh, as a reporter and they were there. Um, the Taliban leadership was in Qatar because they were having peace talks, if you will, we want to use the word peace talks, negotiations with the Americans. And Qatar has an interesting role, if you will, where they have senior controversial figures from around the world 
housed there, and this is a very small country in the Gulf, sometimes at the behest of the West or sometimes because their allies from from way back. And the Taliban had been in Qatar for about a decade and there had been back-channel conversations in Qatar with the US and the Talibs, the guys from Guantanamo who were let out were, were sent to Qatar because no one wanted them back in Afghanistan, no one as in the West and the Afghan government. I am a firm believer in that if you are going to cover a story, you need to talk to all stakeholders um, and that a journalist's role shouldn't be to pass judgment on who are the good stakeholders and who are the bad stakeholders. Um, I think it's good to talk to all sides and have contacts with all sides so that you can appreciate motivations, desires, and um, be able to articulate that in, in your reporting. So I'd, I'd had contacts with them for a few years. How did you end up building that trust or or getting that getting those contacts? Because there's a funny story about you just pretending that you wanted to go and get a cup of tea somewhere. What, talk me through that. There was a basically a country club, a gym with nice facilities in Doha. And the US and the Taliban decided to have talks there. And journalists knew that they were happening, but you couldn't get in the front door. And a friend of mine from the New York Times rolled up at the same time and we saw each other in the car park and we said, well, let's just, I mean, it is kind of a country club. Let's go and have a cup of coffee in the cafeteria. Like we're not, we're not here for anything else. We're just going to sit in the cafeteria. And then we, once we were inside and um, we sat down and ordered a coffee and messaged some contacts that we had and said, if you feel like chatting, we're in the cafeteria. And we sat there for probably eight, ten, I don't know, sometimes longer hours a day waiting for them to come out of conversations. It's a cushy gig. And it was very, very boring sitting at a, in a coffee shop staring at each other. And also once um, the Qataris and their security realized that we were journalists, which happened within a couple of days, they wouldn't let us bring our laptops or our phones in with us. So we had to sit there and stare at each other for 12 hours, hoping that someone would come and chat with us. And every so often the Americans felt sorry for us and bought us some food from the buffet or one time the Taliban came out and asked us the cricket score. But yeah, they'd kind of come out and make kind of passing comments like, oh, we're frustrated, the US won't move on this or the US would come out um, and say, oh, the Taliban, they're frustrating and, you know, have a kind of a side chat. So we, we got a bit of a feel for, for what was going on and that was kind of the start of the um, intensive relationship building with all sides really did you start working on the netflix docker around this yeah it was um around this time because i'd been deploying to kabul and yeah and then then sitting in on these talks and and trying to get my head around what was going on behind the scenes then i was contacted um by a producer saying can you help with 9-11 turning point on netflix it's a series kind of documents US actions post 9-11. They basically gave me a, a shopping list and said, we want interviews with uh, these Taliban, the the US ambassador, this guy, this guy, this guy, some kind of Afghan government negotiators who were bought in. So yeah, that was a few months of, of chasing down people on my days off and, and 
talking to them. Didn't they start coming to your apartment? Didn't the Taliban start coming to your apartment or, or something? What happened there? Um, yeah, so on, on said shopping list, there was um, the, the producers wanted uh, someone out of Guantanamo. And uh, despite my best efforts, I couldn't get anyone out of Guantanamo to interview, but um, there was somebody from a what remains to this day to be a de- designated terrorist organization um, known as the Hakani Network. And there was a young man, Anas Hakani, who had just been let out of prison in Afghanistan as part of a prisoner swap. So he was taken to Qatar and um, we interviewed him. Talking to his people, they said, if we can build trust with you, we want to tell our motivations and everything. So we met a number of times. His father um, was trained by the CIA and, and a CIA um, ally uh, in to push the Soviets out. And, and um, they obviously had a pretty um, large split and they became one of the most formidable um enemies of the US and Afghanistan. Um, They were the most deadly. They did a lot of um, uh, suicide attacks and killed a lot of Americans. Yeah, I mean, when he was let out, he was one of the first Hakan. Most of the Hakanis had never done interviews or anything. The brother, who is now the interior minister in Afghanistan, was the most feared, and he was the head of the network. So, yeah, I was interested to understand how they worked, what their goals were, just to get a better understanding of, of the different kind of groups and how they worked and, and what they were driven by and that type of thing. So it's very difficult because, you know, they their network caused a huge amount of pain in Afghanistan. But if you speak to them, they say that they suffered a lot. So, yeah, it's a very nuanced picture. What were their goals? Like, what what did they actually? Did they just want to kill Americans, or my interpretation is uh, they wanted America out. Um, my understanding, and other people may disagree with me on this when it comes to the Taliban, is that they have a, they have an incredibly unified front, and they will never show a split publicly. But I think it is more of a gray scale. There are less conservative voices within the movement. And I think the the voices that the US heard and others heard in the negotiations were the more progressive voices. And those were the, the people, the, the Taliban members who were saying, yes, women and girls will continue to go to school and women can work. And I do believe that there are more progressive voices within the movement. But when I say progressive, it's not progressive like we think in the West. It's that they may still be very um, conservative in many places, but they still they want their own girls to go to school. The bit that where you went viral, right. Okay, so the the takeover is about to happen in Afghanistan. Taliban are about to take over from the US who are about to leave Afghanistan. Where are you at this point? What's going on? What are you hearing? I'd been hearing for most of the year that the US was definitely going 
and that the numbers were dropping. The US general charge in Afghanistan at that time, I used to go uh, and work out when I was in Kabul at the US base and he'd run like a boot camp so I could have kind of conversations after doing 100 burpees or whatever um, to say, how are you guys getting on and where are you at? And I pushed pretty hard to my boss to send me in the July he um, said, fine, he's sick of me asking. Within two weeks is when the first provincial capital fell. And I say provincial capital, so there's 30, I think just over 30 provinces in Afghanistan and each one has a capital city. You know, Two weeks later, there was 34 capitals and, um, and that was it. Yeah, I, I distinctly remember the, the atmosphere... I've never felt tension um, in the air as palpable as as it felt at that time. It was a hysteria and it was, you had to kind of physically remove yourself not to get caught up in the panic and to try to keep a clear head. Who was panicking? Uh, everybody. Yeah, the... Western journalists were freaking out. Afghans in, in Kabul were freaking out. The security guards of our network used to wear kind of camouflage uniforms outside the gates. You know, I went out and came back and at lunchtime they were in track pants and they'd got changed because they didn't want anyone to think that they could be police or army because they thought they'd be shot on the spot. People didn't know what to expect of the Taliban and they all expected, they didn't know what to expect, but they were preparing for worst case scenario. I remember talking to one journalist who'd been there for years and we were all staying in this one hotel called the Serena, which is where most Western journalists were staying. And it was the morning after the fall and I was heading into work and I saw her at breakfast and I said, what are you up to today? And she said, I'm trying to make it to the airport. And our officers were on the way to the airport. And I said, do you need a ride? And she said, no, I couldn't risk it. I couldn't get in a car right now. And I thought, well, how are you going to get to the airport if you're too scared to get in a car? Um, And I said, it'll be fine. You can just drive with us and then maybe you get a lift from our work to the airport. And she said, no, 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 I can't. I'm going to stay put here and think of a find an evacuation kind of route or plan. And that was yeah, that was how most journalists were were operating. Everyone was terrified. And I say that in the context of I had two things working for me and that I worked for Al Jazeera, mm. which is based in Qatar, where the Taliban leadership has been for a decade. If you say you're Al Jazeera, they're much less likely for the outcome to be negative. Also, I'd had, I had those contacts from being there and had been talking to them and having kind of conversations about what was going on for for one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why united healthcare offers a variety of flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more so whether you're between jobs coming off a parent's plan or even missed open enrollment you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A few years by that point. So I could message them and say, honestly, is it safe? Could there be confusion with, say, younger fighters seeing a blonde woman and saying, someone like you killed my brother and therefore I consider you a target? What is your honest assessment of the security situation for a foreign journalist? You know, they were coming in, they really wanted to make a good impression. They wanted the US to leave without incident so that they could take control. So essentially they were on their best behavior in those kind of initial days, potentially weeks. Because there was chat that they were going to come in and kill all the journos. There was rumor, uh, I mean, the it was just, there was fear. Mm. There was an incredible, I mean, you've seen the videos of, of the airport. People yeah. were absolutely terrified. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd say hysteria is is the word but that kind of detracts from it was very real surely you're seeing those images of the airport surely you're seeing that and going fuck this is bad i need i need to leave yeah the the distinction being that i am a new zealand passport holder and i had contacts and worked for a Qatari owned network. So I had a few layers of security there that I felt that I could fall back on should push really come to shove. Risk risk in um, reporting wherever you are in the world is always a calculation. And you make those risk assessments based off confidence in the information that you have and the breadth of information that you have. And I felt like I had a lot of information, I had reliable information, and I had options. The Afghans who were fleeing did not have those things. They would have no fallback plan if the Taliban decided, wait, weren't you a soldier? Right, then you're a valid target. There's nowhere for them to hide, and no country is taking them out, and they would be looking over their back forever. So mm. their, their situation and, and mine were opposites. The Taliban are coming into Kabul, and th- th- am I right in saying that they were working with the Americans on the whole the whole plan and the evacuation and yeah. security and things? Yeah, this is one part of the reporting that I don't think really that that most people maybe they heard or they didn't really understand, but it got kind of swept under the rug. But I found it to be a very interesting and an important part of of what happened. There was so much going on in kind of diplomatic channels behind the scenes. The conversations that I'd had with US officials, Qatari officials, the Taliban and Afghan government, um, they all lined up. They all told me independently the same thing, which was the plan was not to enter Kabul. They'd all kind of sat in a room in Doha and, and discussed it on the day. Taliban did emerge in Kabul despite the Taliban leadership saying that we wouldn't enter. When I talked to them afterwards, they said, look, we've always had Taliban members inside Kabul for intelligence purposes or whatever. And perhaps they've just revealed themselves to be Taliban members, but they haven't actually kind of entered through the gates with 
with AK-47s. Um, they've been living amongst those people and now they've come out to celebrate. Um, that's how they, they put it. Either way, whether it was rumour or those people themselves that people in the presidential palace saw that pushed them to, to flee really set the dominoes going. There was panic about who was actually in charge of Kabul and there were diplomatic conversations that the Taliban would enter with everyone's agreement to take hold of security. So that the, the US approved that under the condition that the Taliban would not touch any Americans and that they would not enter the airport and that they would give the US time to evacuate from the embassy. So there was um, a lot of helicopters going back and forward and there was kind of security in the air, but that was a, an understanding. And for the weeks that followed as part of the evacuation, the Taliban controlled security for about three quarters of the exterior of the airport and the US was inside. But they were in coordination on everything of who was being allowed in, what routes they would take, what gates would be opened, protocols, everything was done between the US and the Taliban, which, you know, it's incredible when you think that they'd been enemies, but they were, the US was in such a desperate situation to get out and the Taliban was so desperate to get them out without incident that they became, you know, I don't know if teammates is too strong a word, but they were working together. It was very interesting to watch and it put the US in an incredibly difficult position because the people going to the airport to be evacuated were the ones who were most terrified of the Taliban. They were the ones that thought, if we stay, we'll be killed. Mm. And yet, to get them through the gates, the US is having to hand over their names, their passport numbers, their their families' details to show and say, yes, this guy is on the bus and we want him to come through the gate and that needs to be allowed and the Taliban would check it as the bus showed up and then they'd let them through. How did you get to the media conference? We were kind of waiting for the press conference. There was rumour about, you know, when it would be held and, you know, inevitably they were going to have to hold a press conference and say, hi, we're the Taliban and we're now in charge. It was just keeping in touch with contacts I had to say, you know, will it be today? What is going on? Where will it be held? Um, and I remember late afternoon I got a message saying there'll be a, a press conference in two hours at, at this location. And it was kind of a scramble down there. The The first question kind of came about because when – before the, the leaders came down to sit on the stage, a few guys came down to set up their microphones and I asked my producer to go to them and say, uh, you know, my colleague Charlotte here um, is from Al Jazeera and she would like to ask um, you a question during the press conference. Can you write her name down or, or whatever? When, when he'd finished speaking, he opened it up to questions and said, I understand this question from, from Charlotte Bellis. So... That's kind of the the backstory, at least, on how it played out. And I was thinking at the time, um, you know, kind of driving to that press conference, what do I want to ask? If I get one question and, and mm -hmm. they open it up to the floor, what's the question? You know, there were so many things going on around, like, security and the U.S. and the withdrawal. And there were so many important questions at the time. Looking back now, I'm really glad I asked about women and girls and to try to get some reassurance because, I mean, they've really thrown it all out the window, but it was good to have it on the record 
that they've changed tune. And I think also symbolic for them to know that this is incredibly important. I mean, at that time, they really cared about being integrated and accepted, I guess. They they were kind of craving acceptance um, and wanting to continue to have relationships because they knew economically they'd need the support. I don't really have words for how depressing it is to go there now and and see how they've repealed that statement. Mm. But I'm I'm still glad I asked it. It was it seemed to be the most important and enduring question for me. If you look at the overall conflict, do you think that they made the place better in any way? I've just finished a two-year investigation, a documentary on corruption in Afghanistan. And we were basically, it was a whole team of us and a huge investment um, of, of kind of time and resources into where did the money go? Because if you go there now, there's very little to show for it. There, I mean, obviously militarily it was a failure, so there's all the lives lost that go with that. But you'll get two very different answers to that. If you talk to someone who grew up in Kabul and had all the opportunities uh, that the West provided, but rural areas, it was a very different story. And they were very much on the front lines. They were the ones seeing the battles, getting caught up in the conflicts. Yeah, I mean, whether it's a drone strike or a stray bullet or a shell that landed next to their garden that their child picked up and lost a leg from. They suffered acutely and also didn't see a lot of the infrastructure and development that that Kabul saw. So if you talk to those people, they'll probably tell you that they saw. Actually, I know in the in the film we traveled to a village in the north of Afghanistan, 30 minutes from the second biggest city in Afghanistan. And they said that they got support from the Afghan government once in the 20 years. And they didn't have running water. They didn't have power. They had carved their homes out of the hillside. They picked up the whole village, um, 100 families or so, which was, let's say, just under 1,000 people, were picking up pieces of wood from the hillsides and bundling it together. So they walk all the way up these these huge hills every morning, pick up the wood and bring it in, and then go sell it in town and try and get a few dollars for it and use that money to buy medicine or whatever they needed. No education, no health care. The water was a trickle of a stream at the bottom of their hill, and they had to go down and pick up the water in canisters before dawn, before donkeys and everything else clambered over it, and it became undrinkable. That was a iconic picture for me to see. Mm. Um, that twenty years of billions upon billions spent, and still, it's possible that many rural areas, the vast majority of rural areas, live in a very similar way. So, yeah, the answer is there was development in the cities. There were people that benefited, but there were many, many, many people who did not. It, it's kind of trying to to fight trying to do two things at the same time that were in conflict with each other one was beat the taliban and al qaeda and one was develop a country and those two things often came into conflict with each mm. other um you might need 
a corrupt human rights abuser on your side because you want to beat the Taliban in a particular area and he's the strongest opponent to them. And so you give that guy money, but that guy is a corrupt human rights abuser. He doesn't care about democracy or, um, you know, ensuring that children in the next village, you know, have a school mm. um, and that that money is used to develop the country. So you're, they were constantly coming into this conflict. And I think it's probably about when countries engage in conflicts like this that they ensure from the get-go that the money will be used in a targeted way that doesn't undermine their other efforts. What's really um, interesting at the moment in journalism is watching what's going on in Gaza and Israel, the conflict going on there. The suffering that's going on there at the moment, like no one can deny that. The reports that come out of the conflict, it's hard to understand what media is giving you the full truth, what media isn't. What it's very hard these days to get a clear image of a situation, and you almost have a CNN versus a, a Fox, for example. Like you almost have like a two different types of media for every situation. How do we navigate that? How do we know what we know is true? I think this has probably been the hardest conflict to cover um, of any conflict that I've come across, say, in the last decade. There's no right answer. There's no go to this outlet because they never make a mistake and they're straight down the middle. It's the perfect place to get all your news in one place. No. There's there's so many different places to unpick, right, from what we see on social media and that's where people get a lot of their news now, right? So it's this kind of a thing known as news literacy where it's trying to decipher fact from fiction on your feed, what role the algorithms play into that so that you don't end up in kind of an echo chamber with people who think like you. I mean, I, I guess I can only say from what I've been trying to do, which is to seek out outlets from, from multiple places. I mean, news for a long time has from, it started with US outlets and it feels like it's it's pretty much everywhere now mm. that you have a more right-leaning or more left-leaning and people tune into voices that sound or kind of mirror what, what they believe. And I think we really have to fight against that, even though it's it feels very uncomfortable to seek out outlets that challenge your thinking and, and also help with your empathy of what would be the other side for you and to ensure that you really are trying to put yourself in other people's shoes and, and understand where they're coming from and try to always bring it back to the people themselves in this and living it and not get caught up in, is this exact story factual? Could it be that they're the tunnel is here or here, and if it's here, then I'm right, and if it's there, then you're wrong, or there was a rocket that landed here in this village, not that village, seems to me, I mean, it is important, obviously, to have things as factual as possible, but yeah, to try to try bring it back to the overall humanity of how do we focus narratives on um, how is security insured and prosperity insured for all people yeah that's the hard thing isn't it because a lot of the times now whether it's a journalist or an influencer it's about sharing something that's going to get the most interaction isn't it yeah it's um 
the kind of influences, if you will, are very concerning because people think of them as journalists. People think, I like this guy, I trust this guy, and mm. you know, I'm, I'm listening to what he says because um, he has a video and you know, it mirrors my beliefs. And the, the influencers have no responsibility. They haven't been trained in kind of ethics and they, they don't expect to be in this business perhaps for 40 years and their reputation as objective journalists who will go on to cover other things and need to maintain a, a reputation of authenticity and rely on fact and, and ethics. That's, that's not a thing. They want to convince you of their narrative and their beliefs a lot of the time they go the distance to to try to convince you and it's and it's also understanding that how the you don't need to understand how the algorithm works but you need to understand that once you do click on something you're going to get things that are in line with that thinking Mm. you might end up picking a side without even knowing you're picking a side You've just clicked on a link you thought was interesting. Yeah. So your phone's going to keep firing you that same information, especially TikTok, especially TikTok. When's your documentary up? Um, we finished it and now we wait. Um, basically, we don't. We, we want people to watch it. Um, it's an important piece of journalism, if I don't say so myself. Go on. Um but right now, I mean, there's there's no space in the news cycle. Um, which, yeah, if you're if you're not a working in the industry, it's kind of hard to understand. But mm. if if there's one massive story um, that everyone is is focused on, then if if we put it out now, um, you know, it would be Swallowed it wouldn't up. really be uh, watched or absorbed or debated and. Um, we want it to have that that space and, and it to be discussed. There's some important topics around conflicts and money that we've looked into. So, yeah, I mean, I will keep you posted. Keep us posted. That. Keep us posted. Well, thank you so much for mm. coming on the show. Thank you for having me. No worries. And thank you very much for listening. If you like this episode, please make sure you leave us a review or share it on social media. And tag in Charlotte. What's your, what's your Twitter at Charlotte Bellis? Uh, at Charlotte Bellis. There you go. Nice and easy. Tag the Andy Rowe Show in as well. Mm. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks.